It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the T&E Speakeasy, with your hosts, Isaac, Aaron, Zach, and Caleb. Take a seat at the bar and listen in as they discuss a variety of topics, ranging from the afterlife, to religion, to a little bit of political talk. Welcome again to another episode of the T&E Speakeasy. Um, I'm just recording this little intro here as a little bit of a warning for regular listeners of the Novice Leaders podcast. This episode was something of an experiment. Originally, it was going to feature Aaron, Zach, and his brother Josh, but unfortunately, Josh couldn't make it, but he was the one who originally had the idea of doing a podcast centered around religion. Even though he couldn't come, we still kind of tried to touch on those topics a little bit, and we also delve into some political stuff. Stuff that I usually would tend to just, you know, kind of excise out of the podcast and, you know, throw away into the incinerator. But because the onset of this episode came from an idea of talking about religion, I just kind of kept it all as a free-for-all. I tried to edit it down originally. It was about an hour and 45 minutes, and I always try to keep these speakeasies down to about an hour and a half at the most, so... But for anyone who's mainly interested in listening to our pop culture, films, video games, or comic talk, this is definitely far to that range. So if you're not interested in that kind of stuff, you know, feel free to skip this episode and go to something a little bit more uh, on topic. But if you're interested in listening to something a little bit more out there for our show, let us know what you think. You know, shoot us an email over at thenoviceleadus at gmail.com or reach out to me on Twitter and let me know what you think of this more experimental kind of format. Anyway, hope you enjoy the show. It's always a treat there, sir. It's always a treat, Aaron. <laughs> so what topics uh, should we get into then? We had mentioned uh, talking about religion. Are there subtopics of that issue which might be interesting? <sighs> <laughs> One thing that um, I'm kind of interested in is uh, what you guys think about uh, the afterlife and like your level of confidence about that. I mean, I'm pretty confident that there's nothing i oops my mic's falling off someone else take over (laughs) i I just want to save mine after yours okay sure i'll go then for me i don't think that there's an afterlife i think that it's a concept that human beings came up with as a coping mechanism for the anxiety that we feel about death um so it's I, I think you're onto something there, Aaron, that there is a cessation of uh, existence after life, and you just, you know, your energy goes into something else, as, you know, laws of thermodynamics work. Yeah, I, I can't really argue against it. We, we know so little about that kind of stuff. I mean, what's consciousness? I mean, that's really the essence of what's the soul, I think, and there, there's really no answer, really. Where does consciousness come from? Where does it start? I mean... Is there a reincarnation? Is it not? It's 
All fascinating questions, I'll say that. I was going to say, it's not so fascinating to me because I'm... I couldn't be more positive that there's nothing else for me, <laughs> personally. I mean, I, I think nat- naturalistic point of view, there's no room for it. I mean, intelligence is just a byproduct, or a, what's the word, consciousness, it's just a byproduct of an expanding mind with intelligence. And self-conscious as well. Yeah, that's, that's where my real question is. When does self-awareness begin? How intelligent do you have to be? Like, are fish self-aware? I... Is our plants self-aware in a way? Yes. Because we know that they can communicate with other plants. I mean, that I think changes the whole game. And then it becomes our atoms self-aware. Like, where does it where does it end? That's a good question. Or where does it begin? Is the real question. It's all about the here and now, man. But I certainly think once your energy extinguishes, that's it. And the plants around you take it, and the bugs in the ground take it, and then it just turns into something different. But you're gone. So some people might say that uh, your material body is recomposed, you know, into the the environment, like your chemical makeup, but there's a spiritual component to you which survives. So, so would any of us subscribe to that idea? I still want to. That's probably not the best idea, but... Eh, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Yeah, I... Let me... All right. <laughs> Here's where I'm coming from. I have always had a fear of death. And it's not so much that, it's just I want to know what happens on the other side. Like, what does happen when I die? And I can remember at six years old, I think all kids have this, so I shouldn't say, like, I was the only one that had this, but I had asked my dad to legitimately, like, kill me. (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. Because I wanted to... Well, it's so you remember the scene, Caleb, in Ghost in the Shell, 1999 or 1995, where Motoko is she's diving, she's yep. going down into the water. She's 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 great scene, beautiful scene. Imagine that, but she has like a tether, or she had she has her um, air release filter, whatever it's called, and it was basically I didn't want to die. I just wanted to kill yourself or get yourself to the point of where you'll come back to life but you know what's on the other side and then yeah exactly resuscitate yourself and then you're fine like it's it's like okay my question is answered so i'm satisfied and i could live life knowing what is on the other side it wouldn't really tell you though no not really but when you're a six-year-old you want answers (laughs) and you'll accept whatever you get especially in that situation i I assume that's fair (laughs) So that's, that's where I come into this argument. And two years ago, I think I had a dream where there was nothing. Like, I literally, not air quotes, died, but I, I experienced nothingness. But I was okay with it. I just, I was okay. Like, I felt comfortable with the fact that, you know, I, there was no heaven. And I was like, this is okay. Relief? Did you feel relief? I, I felt relief. And now it really is just the fact that I haven't, done anything with my life where I am to that point of satisfied like you know what if it's blackness and I don't realize it maybe I'm okay but at the same time that token still kind of scares me I think that um, because of the fact that we don't believe that there will be an experience after this life our meaning has to come from within us during this life and if the point of our life isn't to please God and get to heaven and avoid 
eternal suffering in hell, then we have to decide, well, then what is the point of our life? And it's really hard to come up with meaning. And that's something I'm struggling with a little bit. Maybe that's an advantage of religion. Um, although when you do invest in the system of symbols that come from religion, it has the opportunity to manipulate you into doing you know, irrational things. You're believing irrational things. Suddenly your whole grasp on reality can change just from buying into there's something beyond this and there's a realm of the supernatural that can completely warp your way of thinking. But not always, obviously. But <laughs> It depends on how desperate of a person you are because desperate people will kind of obsessively do things that are irrational. That's very true. So if you are a desperate, broken person, then you're going to deeply go into religion as much as you would be with alcohol, for instance. Yeah, yeah, it's just... What it, sometimes if you have kind of a mind that's open to poison, anything can just, like, curl like that for you. And if you... Because, I mean, you know me, I'm so positive on alcohol. I mean, it, I think it saved my life many times over. But I feel <sighs> awkward saying that in a lot of circles because I know that it can be so poisonous for so many people. Yeah, you have to be aware of who you're with. Yes. <laughs> you're with a person who obviously does not subscribe to alcohol because I think it is a poison, but I cannot deny that it's helped many, many of people's uh, get through hardships. I mean, if alcohol, if literally, if during this pandemic we didn't have liquor stores open, I think there would be riots. Yeah, probably a lot more suicides too. There's probably, because during the hardest times of my life, I know that the only thing that got me through was numbing myself, not, not even numbing myself. It was the only thing that would make me feel happy was drinking. If that's really true, then maybe there's a form of religion which is less poisonous than alcohol. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> what was Martin Luther as well? A humanist. Being a humanist? I mean, that's, that's a whole other thing. Do you, Aaron, do you subscribe to the notion of any philosophies? It's interesting that you bring up humanism. Um, actually, I'm a member of the British Columbia Humanist Association. Um, I attended their year-end event on Zoom, and we played some Zoom Jeopardy. Nice. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're um, kind of an alternative form of associating with people with a similar belief, but it doesn't operate in a church it operates more like a nonprofit organization because they they have certain goals, right? Like they uh, were involved in the Saguenay decision, where one of the um, municipal councils in Quebec uh, was challenged on their use of prayers as part of the uh, official session, and the the court decided that it was um, a violation of the you know, non-discrimination and um, freedom of association clause in our charter. Then there was another case, um, actually, which is quite interesting. And this, this one was a victory for religious freedom. So in this case, it was Wall versus a uh, Highwood congregation of Jehovah Witnesses. So in this oh, case, the guy got... the. It's not excommunicated, but he was disfellowshipped. So basically, he was kicked out of the church and no longer allowed to participate. And his business suffered because of it, because I think he was 
he relied on a lot of business from the church. I don't want to say he's a real estate agent, but um, <laughs> he relied on those connections. And basically the story goes that he wasn't maybe such a great husband and wasn't as faithful as maybe he should have been. And maybe he had some problems in his life, like gambling or alcohol. And they, they tried to help him. They spoke to him many times. He was given opportunities and warnings. There, there was a, a decision made by a group of elders within the you know the authority structure and then they reviewed it and whatnot and then they decided to disfellowship him right and it really ruined his life and he wanted to sue them for it so he wanted to know if the court had the power to review this decision of this religious body and they decided no you know this is a private religious group they get to make their own rules and the court has no business and no um no skill in uh, reviewing those decisions. You know? So that was quite interesting. Fascinating. So I'd, I'd say maybe to your point, humanism is the secular version of a religion almost. It's again, it's a philosophy to subscribe to a notion. Yeah. I think there are definitely some connections to be made and it, it can also become a social uh, connection as well which yeah. i would love to see uh, you know i want to meet uh young pretty girls who have the same beliefs as me <laughs> then i won't have the problem of uh running into incompatible religious beliefs well it's it's weird because i also maybe this is a little prejudiced but with with religious extremism there's also philosophical extremism such as communism Oh, uh, that's I know. Well, that is a, phys, a philosophy, but it's also a system of government. But yeah, it gets a little more messy. Yeah, exactly. Those those notions are also it could be equivalent to religion and how bad they could be. But they're still I don't know. It's I, I don't know if it's newer or if it's just more accepted. Not really, because the Greeks had both state religion and state philosophy, both working co in hand, which is fascinating to me. Not, not to go back to that point, uh, Aaron, with, with the man, uh, what would you call it? Uh, the, the former Jehovah's Witness man. But I, I, one of my coworkers, I think his family used to be associated with the Jehovah's Witness group. And it just, like, it's, he is vehemently, vehemently against uh, that group of individuals. And does not like them whatsoever. And he uses the words excommunicated. So (laughs) I think they're just not lying, but they, I think they're just trying to use alternative words because they don't want to be associated with, oh yeah, excommunication. It, not to sound biased, but that really is just, he was, the the man you were referring to was excommunicated. (laughs) It seems like at least. Yeah, yeah. They they might use a different word, but you're basically, um, you know, you become a non-member of the community. And the other thing is that when you're involved in one of these religious communities, they are so tight-knit. They are all your social bonds, all your friends. Uh, and it works that way. So when you lose the church, you don't just lose the church. You lose your, in this case, your wife, your children, your friends, your family, your business. <laughs> so you become a homo sacker. A person who has no association or protection under the law, you know, (laughs) someone who doesn't owe you the duty of kindness that you owe to your fellow human. But I want to pick up on your point about communism. I think that was really insightful. Well, before before anything, pardon me for, for going on here, before anything, 
I want to. I, I have like a this crazy idea. I have this crazy point. If I may quickly talk about it, if if you don't mind me doing. So you are a part of the humanist party of BC. I apologize if I botched that. It's the uh, the BCHA, the BC Humanist um, Association. Yeah. So it's not a party, but it is like a. Um, it's like a, a private organization, like a church or an NGO or a, a club. And they do take donations and they do have like political goals. So you could even think of them as a lobbyist group. Interesting. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So a secular version of the church, basically, if, if I may be so inclined to say so. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they have a, a what about page where they talk about how they're committed to the, the values of humanism. Yep. And... Please understand, nobody, I'm not trying to take on humanists or anything like that. I would also try to consider myself a humanist. But it's interesting because I I come from a different place of I'm very shy. And I don't think I work well with groups. And here's where I'm trying to go with this. You very much, Aaron, are looking for a group. Not for, I hope, not not so one person might say for self-validation or you're just going to say because it pleases me or i i enjoy it and that's a lot of things with now we are nowadays yeah as as religion is i don't think it's lessening but as people are getting more aware and not being raised religiously whatever that means they're subscribing to groups and notions and especially one big thing you can see is the lgbt plus community and you know, how they, they have group dynamics. Same thing with, like, feminist groups and with, like, what Alex Jones and his, you know, what he, he does. That's a whole, like, you could say that's a cult. And anybody could say that's a cult. Not really, because there's kind of devotion. There's meditations involved with that stuff. but Cult of uh, mentality. There you go. I think what I'm trying to get through is, is group dynamics. And, yeah, I don't really fit into those groups, per se. I don't know why I've always I've always tried to be an individual. I don't try to be a follower just because I've been a follower for so many years and I kind of want to set on my own path. And going back to the reason why I feel afraid of death is probably because I need maybe group dynamics to feel validated, perhaps in, you know, wanting to not believe in the afterlife or at least if I die, then I feel way more sat- satisfied. So are you, are you saying you're like scared of like the isolation of death, perhaps, or that death results in isolation? Sort of. I I I, I don't know. I think I think if you're part of a group, you feel more satisfied in life, and thus you don't feel scared of death, or at least you you accept death because you've had made all these connections in life that you look reflect on them and it's like I think it's my time, and thus you. You, you end your life, not end your life, but your life ends with these these wonderful memories that you'll always cherish. And maybe some somehow in in sensation, cessation of existence, perhaps there's a memory out there of, of you. Who knows? Well, I'm sure you know where I'm going to go with the whole group dynamic thing because I'm always going on about how we're just animals. Kind of, We are such creatures of instinct and we don't even really realize it half the time. Indeed. But, I mean, we come from a long line of extremely social animals, so, I mean, that's what we're built to live within. Yeah, and um, I think that when we start talking about different philosophies, like humanism or um, 
different religion like the Church of the Nazarene or Catholicism or Lutheranism or even ideologies like uh, communism or conservatism or stoicism sure Um, (laughs) it's not quite then then you can run the risk of abuse anytime you get dogmatic about the beliefs if you think that these ideas can be applied universally without exception and without thought to the particular circumstances of each individual case and whether it's appropriate or not, which we would call uh, the human capacity for moral reasoning, then these things can become extremely abusive. So if you think that these are God's laws and you know who are we to question them, or you know this is the communist dogma and we need to follow it at all costs, then we can see so many examples of that becoming abusive and destructive. Or even adherence to the law. You know, people can be very dogmatic about the law as well. But we know that there are unjust laws that can be included. And what unjust laws are those, in fact? How do we dictate? Morality, of course, comes into that discussion. (laughs) But, you know, one sees something unjust, the other sees it as just. Who decides? That's the masses, I guess. And who's the masses? Those in control. Well, I don't think it is the masses because I think that would be uh, a lot, an argument from populism. So I, Perhaps. I think that there's, there has to be some kind of logic or reason involved in making moral arguments. And like when we look at history, we can see a beautiful example of this. You know, in the era of the Civil War, there were debates going on about slavery. So this was a moral question, and it was enacted into the law. There was built into the Constitution structures like the Two-Thirds Compromise, which gave southern states voting representation for their black populations while preventing the blacks from voting. Mm -hmm. And then you had issues like the Fugitive Slave Act. So, So slavery was embedded into the law, and there were groups of abolitionists who said this is clearly immoral. And there were some defenders of slavery who, who defended it on moral grounds. So, so how, would, how would we engage with that topic? How are you going to decide if it's the morality of the question? I think from where it would come from is the basic question, would I want to be enslaved by somebody else, be property of somebody else, and allow them to do whatever they want to me? And this is coming from a man who's never had that decision made for him. So, whereas with like a like a, a slave themselves, I, I I would hope they have that belief as well. They have inside of them they believe that they should be a free person, able to judge, make decisions on themselves, and not by their masters or by the abuser. Excuse me. So basically, do unto others as you want them to do to you. Philosophy. That's you know, I, there, all religions and even thoughts of, of philosophy do kind of have a similar... Well, de- okay, depends on the, on the philosophy, but they mostly all have like a similar principle, set of principles. And I do enjoy that in, in Christianity. I, I do love the love thy neighbor as thyself mantra. I think that's a good one. And again, it's everybody, I think, has that uh, in a way in the world. All religions have that. 
So what I'm hearing from you, Isaac, is you're engaging in empathy and you're also engaging the veil of ignorance. So that's John Rawls' idea that we need to look at the situation as if we don't know which role we're going to play. So you're imagining as if you would have been a slave and would have that would that have been fair to you and deciding that it wouldn't. So those kinds of skills and that empathy is taken away from you when you have a dogmatic view of the world because then you're just going to say, well, what does God have to say about the issue? You know, or or what does the dogma have to say about it? And then your job is not as a moral agent to engage in empathy and argument. Your job is to look at the dogma and apply it to the situation. So you take on a passive role. Yeah, isn't that terrifying? Ugh. Yeah, that's what I think is so sick about it. Yeah, yeah. In my view. You're right, and it's almost like you, as as soon as you become part of this, like you know, mass mentality, you almost lose your individuality. Oh, that's the whole point, I think. Which I yeah, that's that's one reason I don't want to be a part of groups. Even if I am, as Caleb knows for a fact that I'm always indecisive, I at least try to see it from other people's point of view, but still have my own opinion of a fact or not a fact, but my facts I try to come up with from getting both sides of the argument, looking at the histories, and from there, then I guess judging for myself who's right and who's wrong. And that that might be problematic of me, but I guess you don't know who you're getting the history from. Is always the uh... oh, is Zachariah joining us here? Hello, sir. Oh. Uh, yeah. So I, I I just hopped on now. Um, can you guys hear me? Hey, Zach, how's it going, man? I haven't talked to you in a while. Yeah, no, it's it's good. Uh, I just connected my mic here, so I can <laughs> I can <laughs> impart some some of my thoughts here too. <laughs> Um, so what's the question? <laughs> uh, right now we were just talking about how dogmatic beliefs can exist like within religion or within a political ideology and how they can cause you to lose the ability to engage in moral reasoning and try to empathize with certain situations. And we were using the example of slavery. Okay, so it's how um, the morality, um, you kind of just get stuck within the tracks of your religion and you just kind of stay within that um, zone as you don't really differentiate or, or what do you mean here exactly so isaac was using the example of you know he would engage in imagining if he was a slave and how would he like that you know uh, whereas maybe a religious person would like look to the bible for a source of authority mm -hmm. well actually doesn't jesus condone slavery or something or he's like Take the slaves from the nations around you, but not fellow Israelites, because that would be wrong. <laughs> um, but, well, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, slavery has existed since almost the beginning of humanity. Like, it goes really far back. And I think it's about control. So it's, it's really hard to say, because your morality and your, how you were raised, and I think it, it's such a big factor. Like, religion plays such a huge role in determining your morality when you're growing up. So it just depends on what kind of beliefs you were initially taught, I guess. And that would largely dictate how you interpret slavery and that kind of injustice. Does that kind of make sense? It does. Um, it'd be hard to convince people, especially people who were kind of drilled into their brains that they're just not the same kind of people. 
like they're something else. Like that's kind of the struggle I have when it comes to uh, like with trying to talk to people about factory farming. It's like people just they're just like ah oh, they they're just not really like us. So like how do you convince them that it's just horrible that with what they're doing to them? Like if they just view them as some other creature, it's easy to just dismiss it. So I, I don't know how to how you convince those people, but I they're so firm in their belief. They're so committed to that cause, or at least that idea. I don't want to like say they're obsessed with it, but they just they, they stick to their their belief, and they're just it's all that's for them. And I can't deny somebody's experience and the way they were brought up, but at the same time, there has to be at least in my eyes, there has to be a line that needs to be drawn to say what's right and what's wrong, and. Back to what I kind of was saying is I'm trying to ask these white supremacists, I, I, not, I haven't asked them this, but like to, to a white supremacist, like, how do you justify all that you're saying? Like, this is insane because I was raised differently than they were. I, I shouldn't deny their experiences, but at the same time, it's like, this is not objectivism, but objectively speaking, this is wrong, or at least from my perspective. But if, if they think that the thing is inherently lesser than them, it's just arguing on a completely different level. How do you convince them, no, obviously we're, we're all the same? Um, I think a really big factor is, um, like, let's say, like, when the British stumble across a population or something, they don't see value in it. They just see value in the resources, in this and that, in the land, not in the people or in the culture or in the... You know, maybe they have a traditional whatever, right? But but the British aren't focused on that. So I think they're valuing different aspects. So when they come across the people, it's more like an afterthought. It's like, whatever, we'll just use you as... A means to an end. Exactly, right? yeah. As opposed to very much like... I don't know. It, it happens in a lot of these cultures where like the Germans and the Jewish the you know the natives and the british and stuff they just consider them like second tier or like second class citizen and i think that justifies or it it allows them that kind of moral wiggle room yeah they're just they view themselves as superior and they're it's it i think it does kind of come from well it doesn't actually come from christianity because it goes across the board i think it's just an inherent part of humanity to kind of group think and otherize everything else our group's the good group everything else is something else but there's that whole dominion of man over the animals and i think people kind of put those lesser tier as they view it people into that kind of animal sphere so it's easy to just be like oh of course we're on the top and they're kind of the ones that we have dominion over jeez so how do you convince them otherwise yikes mm -hmm. it, well especially when they have a lot of these things that are like proving it to them in a sense where like to, to keep with the British example, like, you just pull up in your battleships and they have, like, little canoes and stuff. So that, like, solidifies your, yeah, we're better than you kind of thinking and mentality. Yeah, call them primitives. <laughs> Aaron, let's let's hear from you. I want to know what you think of all this right now, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a really good point Caleb made about, you know, factory farming. And um, I watched a video recently of this lady who was talking about carnism which is a word that she created. And carnism, in her definition, is the practice of eating meat and the belief systems that justify and enable eating meat. So she identified three myths. So she says that people come up with the myth that it's normal, the myth that it's natural, and the myth that it's necessary. 
And if people believe that eating meat, or really any belief, but if they believe that it's natural, it's necessary, and it's uh, normal, then they'll absorb it into their belief system. So I'm actually curious what what arguments Caleb would make about factory farming to somebody. I, I gave up trying to convince people because my point of view, because I have that whole crazy animal thing, crazy to some people, it makes complete sense to me. Again, I view animals as essentially the same because we're animals, you know. We experience life differently and I don't think there's anything lesser or wrong with them experiencing life differently. And so I have that difficulty separating and being like, obviously if, if humans were going through this kind of treatment, everyone would be absolutely disgusted, but because it's this lesser being to them, it's whatever. I just, I, how, how do you convince someone? Yeah, that reminds me of like some of these videos that I've seen about like animals where if they grow up with like another animal that's totally different to them, they'll just form like a, a, a bond. And you can see how across the animal kingdom, it's like animals can feel love too. So maybe some people don't know that, or maybe there's information that they're not getting, and that influences, you know what I mean? Because, like, people with dogs, they think, oh, no, we don't eat dogs, because there's that affection and there's that love and care. Like, if there was a dog farm factory, good God. (laughs) The hell raised. Oh, that's because it's part of our group. It's man's best friend. It's not an other in that same way. But I think if people knew that, like, and and they could see the connection between... Like, you know, a, a duck and a crow or something. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they, they can feel emotion too. They are animals the same as us. So as long as people understand that, I think that could be a, uh, one of the arguments you could potentially bring to try and convince those people. Because we want to humanize the animals. Does that make sense? See, I'd say it the opposite. I want to animalize the humans and make people realize we're not something different. I mean, definitely the intelligence is different. At least as far as we know, we find out that animals are much more intelligent than we realize just constantly once we learn more about them. But I think there's another parallel here, which is quite interesting, between the way that slaves were treated, you know, as property. They were bought and sold. People would comment on their their bodies and their different potential oh you know this person is a good worker or something and the same things are being done with animals like you know children are separated and sold separately from the parents and you can basically kill a slave or an animal if it's your property as long as it doesn't violate the law and the law says that you shouldn't inflict unnecessary suffering on an animal so you can kill the animal for food, but you need to make sure that you're not inflicting any unnecessary suffering. So then there's a debate about, okay, well, how much suffering is necessary for creating an efficient system? And uh, how much money does it take to you not to enforce those laws? <laughs> I mean, that's really the big problem. Oh, and we see a lot of self-enforcement in yeah. the industry. Yeah. Jeez, Jesus Christ. And another example of like interesting uh, laws, you know, laws aren't always good, is the new um, agriculture gag laws. So they basically made it a criminal offense for people to be like recording or um, standing outside of like a meat processing factory holding signs and like in any way interfering in the process or, 
or documenting the process or being like a whistleblower. So if you're exposing what's happening, then you're committing an offense. There's laws protecting them or protecting the company. Yeah, they call them ag gag laws because they're they're gagging criticism of the big agra. Yeah, that's it's absolutely repellent. Yeah, it sounds like big big pharma, big agra protecting their interests. Yep. Denying somebody else's freedom of speech for over theirs. And again, people turn a blind eye because they're like, oh, what is it? They're just animals. They're just meat. I think that's kind of the source of racism in a lot of ways. And I don't think it'll ever really go away because I think it's just inherent in kind of the structure of the human mind and being part of a group and exterior people of the group. I think it's just built in. Well, it's, you know, there's always been competitivism within tribes of animals uh, and over the basic necessities of, you know, food and shelter from the other. There's always this, what is it? There's always a, not an attack, but they always want to protect themselves from the other. Exactly. Because, you know, they, they think differently from us, therefore we have to protect ourselves from them. And that's been in every single freaking you know, animal and or living being in this world. Even fungi have the same ideas. Even protists, I believe, <laughs> have this idea down on the microscopic level. I mean, the whole point of life is to reproduce and try to get a niche and try to survive. So, I mean, you kind of have to have that, like the herd mentality. And I, I wonder, are, can, is, are animals, and I just mean humans, are animals capable of going beyond, you know, just competition and tribalism yes and i think I, I i yes but i think you need to really do something to yourself and i i don't think it'll just come from thought itself i think you need to somehow change if that makes any sense do you mean as like as a as a whole like do you mean how, how to get that out of like the baked in dna the populace of the whole even though that right there just changes perspectives and then maybe future animals are just like oh wait a minute this is wrong like being in <laughs> harmony with each other no we got to go back to the ways that we used to be let's go back to competition uh and tribalism because that 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 actually was a better idea than unity because for some reason the thoughts of the day are against unity I've, i don't know i've always been fascinated with something like that for sure and i think that it also connects with uh, what we were talking about earlier and I think you'll agree with me, Zach, because um, when you're in a religious group, you create like an in-group and an out-group, and you're able to bond with the in-group at the expense of distancing the out-group. Oh yeah, for sure. It's so easy to point at them and say they're different. We're all the same, relatively, you know, to find these minor differences. Especially if you can say that we're a persecuted group. And... and Oh well, yeah, no, trauma, it really bonds people together. So if you're being persecuted and, you know, your religion is illegal or whatever it is, it makes it all the more more important for, for that group or that it solidifies that bond and it kind of deepens it. Definitely. I mean, it can have a counter effect. Yeah, it can also push you to reject the outsiders more and more until you become so insular that any kind of uh, anything is perceived as persecution. Oh no, someone said happy holidays to me, like, oh my god. <laughs> no, yeah, it just it just kind of reminded me of, like, how a, how a Jewish person might, might say, like, um, or when someone says, like, Merry Christmas to them, they're like, I celebrate Hanukkah, or, or whatever. You're like, 
whatever, dude. It's, it's such a minor. But but they perceive it as like an attack, as you're pushing your ideas and mentality on me. Um, but no, this is what I think. They have to show that. Maybe it's a pride thing, or maybe it's... Um, they're just feeling like they're living in a culture that's so something else and always kind of pushing Christianity, which I can get annoyed at as an atheist who felt mm. for a long time like atheists were kind of spat on by society. Yeah, I mean, I think that at a fundamental, like, logical level, atheists are a major threat to uh, religious groups because they introduce the idea that actually none of this is right. And I'm I'm basically wasting my time with lies. Yeah, the whole foundation that they stand on is just nothing. I mean, that's so that's that's extremely threatening. And if it's if this is your social circle, if this is your everything, yeah, if this is your entire life um, or a big part of your life, or you believe that it is, then it's hard to be open to any kind of challenge. It's like a challenge to your life. Why would you? Why would you risk that? Yeah, I think that's why they tied atheism and communism so well together. It's just like it's this completely foreign alien thing. And they hate your God. They hate your freedom. In countries like Iran or Saudi Arabia, where religion is um, not only a tool of political repression, but also ingrained into the society, it's an extreme threat to the, the power structure to have atheism. And they treat it like such because it would undermine their tools of maintaining power in the country over the people. Well, it's almost like the floodgates opening a bit. If you allow a little bit of logic and reasoning, it kind of like the, the, like the door is creaked open and now it's just the water's rushing in from there. You can't stop the, the, the pressure. It builds, I feel like. So yeah, no, sorry. Um, I jumped into the conversation a bit late. Um, what, what did you guys talk about before? Oh, pretty much that, for at least for the recording-wise. We were talking about that kind of conversation for quite a while. <laughs> yeah, we were um, getting into, like... Mm-hmm. Afterlife. A little bit into religion, yeah. Oh, yeah, afterlife, yeah. And then our mm-hmm. sources of knowledge. And I think, basically, we came to the idea that our bodies will rot... And our consciousness will end, most likely. But Isaac did say that he has a fear of death and hopes that maybe there's something more. And hopefully he'll elaborate if I'm getting that wrong. Oh. <laughs> so you guys are kind of like predicting what's going to happen when like somebody dies? Just kind of what our perspective is on it, I think, more than predicting. Mm-hmm. Kind of where our comfort level is with our perspective, at least. So if you have any thoughts, Zach, you can say them now and Caleb can edit them into that part if it makes sense. <laughs> You've been here this whole time. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that makes yeah, sense. You know, actually, I don't think I could. I don't think I could make that work. <laughs> God dang it. <laughs> That'd be hard. <laughs> um, Zach, you just need to use really general statements. <laughs> No, it's okay. I'll I'll basically say what what I think here. Um, so like when, what? Okay, let's jump back to like before we existed. When when we weren't born yet, we weren't experience anything. We weren't aware. We weren't 
like we just didn't exist our brain our consciousness nothing right so it's only once you are born into this world and your brain starts to develop and then maybe around five or six or four or it's more like three or four right boom you're you're aware now you're you and it's only because of this physical kind of reality that we're able to perceive the world and okay now i'm six and seven and eight and nine right but then once we die we revert back to that non-existent like your consciousness your brain has stopped functioning and now you are in that state of non-existence again where that reaction isn't happening there's nothing so it's back to that state of uh, before you were born when when there's hardly you know you know what i mean like you're not experiencing anything you're not aware that you're not experiencing anything because your consciousness which was within your brain is now gone and that's just kind of how i perceive death right there with you yeah yeah so i yeah so seeing like the christianity side and the the buddhism side and all these other sides where there, there's an explanation or possible explanation i just don't think it's valid i think that it's more probable that it's going to be the same that it's it's going to be what happened before we existed where it's just nothing nothingness but obviously a more comforting thought <laughs> is maybe yeah reincarnation maybe i can be born again into a, a dog or, or a bird or uh you know or or another person or or maybe i can be you know maybe my soul will keep on existing right but i don't know for me that it doesn't yeah <laughs> i feel like i've seen too much death to believe in it because i've had so many pets and for the most part i've been there when they when they died and it just mm-hmm. it's just an end I don't see any sort of, yeah. uh, <laughs> I couldn't picture there being anything else. It's just, you know, life and death. That's, that's it. That's the way she goes. Oh yeah. Shit. Isaac, you were there for one of my pets dying too. I just remembered that. Oh God. That's horrible. Oh. That's horrible. Oh yeah. That was, uh, <laughs> is that when we watched yes, Ponyo? Yes. We ruined Ponyo by, uh, one of my, one of my rats dying. Oh. That was so awkward, man. Like, your sisters were all in the room, and they're like, Oh, hey, it's Ponyo. Let's watch this. And then, like, who was it? Nausicaa had died? I think it was Daenerys at the time. Yeah. Daenerys had passed away and... Or was in the process of passing away. That was ugly. That was... What a a day that was. Yes. That's death. Death is just ugly, and it's just the way it is, you know? (laughs) But then then it ends, you know? Then your life ends. You just gotta... Hope that it was worth it. It's really uh, all you can hope for. I'm trying to remember though, one of your rats did chew something of mine that day. I still remember that. <laughs> they love to chew anything. That's that's true. Yeah, they lived live for that. that. <laughs> okay, it's probably other topics, but I have I have one, and this is for you, Caleb. Sure. So you were talking about um, oh, what was that building you you were referring to for the first dates or for dates? Oh, the Bloedel Conservatory. Okay, Bloedel Conservatory. Difference between that. And a zoo, animal habit, uh, animal captivity. Go. Yeah, at least because one time we did it, we did like the tour, and they were saying like some of them were pets that people had bought, but then realized that the breed was just way too, way too much work, and so they donated them to the conservatory, or donated to a pet store, and then a pet store couldn't sell them, so they donated to the conservatory. So it, 
at least from the impression that they were giving, I have no basis for this belief other than what the people who were paid to uh, work for the place told me. But they said that they were like rescue type of things. <laughs> but they seemed happy, you know? I mean, in the brief moments that I was there, they seemed happy. Lots of different okay. birds around to hang around with. Birds are extremely social animals. Um, so I'm sure they appreciate that. A lot of them I could tell appreciated like coming up and hanging out with the humans because they would certainly come up to you and like although I could tell the people who were working there discouraged that and would kind of try to shoo the animals away but <laughs> but yeah when it comes to zoos I mean if, they, if they're handling rescues that's a different sort of thing there's an element of people just coming around and constantly gawking at them and uh, there's something that makes me feel uncomfortable about just having animals in cages at all but some animals couldn't survive otherwise and, and they can have a good life you know, better than if they were just, you know, struggling to exist in the wild. But but maybe it's not a better life. I, I don't know. I don't know their perspective. Perhaps. What about the aquarium? Yeah, well, see, me, me and Aaron were actually talking about this earlier. For the longest time, I thought that fish were, like, basically, like, moving plants where they didn't have much of an intellect at all. So I just assumed that the fish didn't really care. <laughs> but that's, I, I feel like that's incorrect uh -huh. now, but... But yeah, I still don't know what to, to think with yeah. aquariums. I... Well, well, what do you think about those um, orca whales that they caught? That's certainly different. Mammals are a different thing than, than fish. It's um, But even the fish. I mean, like, y you put them in a tank, and in, nor in real life, they'd probably travel, what, like, 5 kilometers, 10 kilometers in a day or something? Yep, yep. Uh, and, and you're just putting the boom. You're going in one four-foot tank like i don't know um i feel like you're not giving them the best life they may not realize it but you're not giving them the best absolutely does that make sense no you're right on that yeah and now i don't even know how much they realize and because they found plenty of fish that can like do problem solving and i mean i don't think there's any way that a fish could ever communicate to us that it experienced self so i have no way of knowing that <laughs> but well maybe they Maybe there's, like, one fish population that becomes intelligent, and then, you know, like, I've often thought, like, maybe another, if mammals can become intelligent and, you know, aware, maybe other animals can eventually develop their brain and become aware and, you know. Well, I don't know about fish, but I know that um, octopi are extremely intelligent. Yep. Yeah, incredibly intelligent, yeah. And the more they learn about them, the more they're just amazed by them. So, and yeah, there's, they certainly have one of those at the, the aquarium. I'm sure it's not the happiest guy around, but. Or, or girl. Or girl. I knew you were going to say that. Somehow I. I... <laughs> or those in between. We don't know if they, I, I'm pretty sure they do have male and female. But... Yeah, they, they still, there's still reasonable theories to present that they're not uh, from this earth. Because they're just so radically different than every, everything else. But some theorize that they're, um, what would you call it? Kind of a, a species due to. Uh, panspermia i think they call it where it's like they came down oh, on like an asteroid like, or their seat or their uh, i was gonna say seeds but <laughs> from another yeah makes sense but there's there's no other basis in that than they just operate the way their dna operates is an incredibly different than anything else on the planet so they could have just been incredibly unique or they could have been from another world but <laughs> uh, I, I could see that but it's the whole like just because they're aliens doesn't mean anything. Like, well, alien life is whatever it is. It's not going to be what we expect. 
in the no, long run. It'd be life. <laughs> after well, yeah, it will be. But like after so many depictions in media and and fiction, it's not going to be what it, it, it is in reality. Yeah, that's true. Our um, the limits of our own um, world prevent us from imagining what life could be like on another world. I mean, the life on our own planet for the longest time, people couldn't have imagined. Like when they finally sent ships down to the bottom of the ocean and they saw all those species down there, boggled everybody's mind. Still boggles my mind. I watch those kind of videos all the time. By the way, I have a correction. Um, octopi is apparently incorrect. It's supposed to be octopuses, apparently. Yes, there's certainly debate there. Certainly debate. I prescribe to the octopi uh, side of the equation, but... <laughs> well, fair enough. Um, what was I... What were we talking about there? <laughs> I, I was just... Back to what I was saying, just, you know, zoos and animal captivity or and all that crap. Just in that, you know, we're animals, so we're captaining... We have other animals in captivity and if we should interfere in their lives all that stuff yeah i do think the one potential positive for some people it's obviously not going to affect most people because most people will just inherently never view animals as anything other than just a thing for their amusement piece of meat but for some people like me going to zoos and as a kid they disturb me it's just something like I, I, I tell, I've told you this story, Isaac, many times. But me and Sierra one time, we're just driving and we saw a sign for a zoo, and we we're like, "Hey, let's go there and let's, you know, like, waste like half an hour there." And there was this one anteater, and it was in this tiny, tiny little cage, and it just walked back and forth, back and forth, and it just, it, did, it just sickened me just to see that. So I, mm-hmm. there's um, there's a quote I found. Uh, or like a general message basically I, I, I learned um, like when you're young you like the zoo because there are animals right but then when you're older you don't like the zoo because there are animals there so it, because they're they're so caged up and and they're not allowed to live their proper life I think as you get older you're like yeah well, like let this guy go back into the wild why is he stuck in this 12 by 12 cage you know you're like you sympathize with them so much more when you're older for some people some people could just they could just never care i think they just view them as so different that they just it it doesn't even factor in wow and as someone who who used to try to argue for you know being a vegetarian and against animal cruelty i've come to realize that a lot of people just they they could never care wow i mean I mean, the, like the general population. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the general population. I really, I really don't know what their opinions are on zoos or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We almost need like a general population website for <laughs> each like province or state or whatever you want to call it. Just general poll, whole world. Gen- <laughs> yeah, like all right, what's everyone's opinion on this? Like, what's right and what's wrong? Like, who's who's offended who? Who's who's blacklisted or silenced or whatever they call it now? Uh, we live in we live in a terrible age. It'd be ruined instantly by bots. Oh yeah. Well, well, actually, what do you guys think about this whole um, Chinese software and stuff inside the U.S. election hardware? And um, I mean, even just what China's doing right now. There's there's like a million topics. Uh, sounds suspiciously like four years ago. 
or five years ago, excuse me. Now with Russia Gate. Yeah. But I've also heard um, Australia and China and Chinese like buying out um, diplomats or like members of parliament and like they're just I don't know, man. Like, what do you guys think about that? It uh, doesn't surprise me. I mean, that bu- buying out politicians has been a, I don't know, been a standard for practice for since politics existed. <laughs> Trying to sway, yeah. you know, a person of influence over to your side with money or blackmailing or whatever. It's common, I guess. And that's this time it's like a government themselves doing it. I don't know. It doesn't surprise me. Is it is it wrong? I I believe so. Others will say no, but I objectively think it's wrong. Like from a universal standpoint, I think that's that's wrong, and everybody should be their own person and come together to agree on some form of coexistence. Have you guys heard at all about the Belt and Road Initiative? What is that, sir? I I do not know what that is. Oh, Aaron did a whole project on the Belt and Road Initiative. Oh, really? Uh, yes. Yeah, that's true. I. I did do uh, I did do a project on the BRI, yeah. Yeah, I definitely um, have pretty. I think that's going to change the whole shape of the world. I think. I mean, at least in terms of global superpowers, I think people don't realize the the coming change, but it's coming. So, what is it exactly, if I may ask, as an uninitiated person? Well, I believe it's mainly in Africa, but I it might be another parts of the world too but it's basically china being like it's kind of soft imperialism where instead of going in and using force to kind of cement your kind of uh tendrils into a country they're just using funds to rebuild infrastructures and you know kind of help developing nations develop faster using chinese money and using chinese energy and so i mean how how could that not change the face of the world i think well they're trying to facilitate trade through all these like like the new silk road kind of right like right now it's all through shipping out to the east and through the suez canal and the panama canal and all that but they're trying to shift it to make china the the dominant player pushing it through the the east to the west and i don't know i've heard mixed reviews from um well not Apparently, some countries are like getting debt trapped by China. Exactly. And um, yeah, so like, and then they're just like, "Fuck it, I'm not paying." Um, you know, uh, thanks for the train station. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you who has realized the the problem is the U.S. intelligence uh, mm. service and the military because they're building bases all all over Africa right now, preparing for a, a big proxy war. I don't know when it's going to start, but oh, they're fuck. they've already. They're prepping. They're both prepping. So, <laughs> a new Cold War is upon us. It could very well be, but I don't think America's yeah. in any place to put themselves into another Cold War. I don't think they can afford it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think China's been on the rise, and they're forcing it. So who knows? Maybe there'll be like a coalition against China. Well, actually, that's one of the really uh, interesting aspects of this, and. I don't want to. I don't want to get going on this for too long and take too many minutes. So I hope you, you you'll uh, you'll edit me out or cut me off. But China's major problems right now are coalescing, and the Belt and Road Initiative is a way of uh, combining multiple issues into a solution. So 
on one hand, China is a country which is extremely dependent on trade, and it is um, it hosts a relatively small coastline, which could be potentially blockaded by the U.S. Navy, and that would strangle China's trade. So they are investing in trade infrastructure to make China the center of the next hundred years of trade in the fastest growing part of the world in um, Asia. So it's it is largely in Africa, but it's also in Southeast Asia and Central Asia and uh, in Europe. So they're building ports, rail lines, um, transportation infrastructure, entertainment and uh, luxury buildings as well. And it's affecting nearly every country in the world through the, the ability to offer credit. So they're offering countries credit and then they're using Chinese companies and construction which have grown so big building up China, but now need a new market to continue growing. So they're basically exporting their construction industry. And it's it does have the potential to be imperialist, but it also has the potential to be positive, to give countries access to uh, infrastructure that could really help build them up, but they need to negotiate fair deals. Um, and it's probably a better way of experiencing imperialism rather than the more militaristic ways um, that we know of from history. Absolutely agree in terms of setting up the empire. What the empire turns into is the the part that keeps me pretty terrified. Because <laughs> the Chinese Communist Party, I mean, as much as I hate a lot of the aspects of the U.S. empire, I mean, the Chinese Communist Party is a very ruthless and terrifying organization. I think the CCP is is bringing back like this kind of new age Hitler and and the Nazi party in our time. You know what I mean? Like this is the next generation. Well, that's that's the fear. You know, that's that's the fear. I often don't like to jump to that um comparison because it's such a kind of heated one, but uh, who knows Us versus them. Well, just that particular ish particular piece of history. The concentration camps, man. Certainly, certainly. It's just, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, I like these re-education camps and these videos, and like, especially in China, where there's just huge regions and, and populations where this shit's going on, and it's being like suppressed. I don't know. I just think like it's fucking bad. Yeah, it it broke my heart to see that happen to to Hong Kong. All those years of independence, and they were supposed to have so many more years, and just the Communist Party jumped the gun, and nobody came to, to back them up like they were supposed to. None of their allies came to them. Exactly. Like I'm sure they blamed on the pandemic, but it's so pathetic that they didn't show up for them. I mean, and even then, there, there were two countries. Um, I think it was like the United Kingdom and Canada were like Canadians in Hong Kong, and Hong Kong residents can apply to Canada for like you know blah blah blah, and um, and then China does like retaliation moves and shit. So it seems like I don't know, they're they're really being aggressive in their politics, and especially with um, with India and with Japan and and all these other countries nearby. Um, they're being really pushy. It's, I don't know, it's scary. For yeah, me. it's it's very scary. And China has a lot of bad blood. And uh, 
I should say the Chinese Communist Party yeah. holds on to a lot of that bad blood. And so I'd be very concerned what they would do as the uh, the superpower. Where they would choose to kind of hoist their power around, I, I, it's very, very concerning, I think. But that's what I mean. Like, they have so much bad blood with everybody, they've pissed off a lot of people. Now it's time for the coalition. And if, if the world can unite and say, look, like, China's a problem. We need to deal with them through trade and through their weakness, not through the military. That's how I think we can, you know, like, if we, if we get, like, 45 countries or something to be like, okay, no trading with China or, or limited trade or, or blah, 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 and try and trade with each other instead. I mean, especially because it's so cheap how, how they, like, they use slave labor to drive down their costs. They use, I don't know, like, they pay their workers dirt. Like, in a lot of cases, they use, like, prisoners and, like, people in these, like, forced labor camps and stuff, and they don't pay them anything. But then they're selling it to the world to make, like, thousands and thousands of dollars. So it's, it's really, I don't know, and, and it's the government doing that. It's not like the business itself where there's like some shady guys. It's the government state-run operation. So that's why it's like really scary for me. Yeah, that yeah that party. It's it's just a poison, I think, just a poison. Mm-hmm. But yeah, guys. Well, it's been uh, good catching up with you, but uh, <laughs> it's getting pretty close to my bedtime here, so I'm gonna have to say good night. Yeah, I think the bar is closing up soon too, so we better better get out of here. COVID regulations, you know. Got to close at 12 now. <laughs> oh, but it was good chatting with you, Zach. Uh, haven't talked to you in a while. Hopefully Josh can get on here next time. Yeah, no, definitely. Does it happen often, or is it more like... Whenever he asks me. Me and Isaac have been recording usually once or... Usually twice a week, almost, in the past little while, at least. But, yeah, pretty pretty often. But I think if before you leave, Aaron, there is one last thing I'd like to say, and this is elaborating a little more on your episode you did with Caleb about Queen's Gambit. Just, just quickly, because I did, I did have stuff I wanted to say, but I wanted to do it. I, I wanted it on record. <laughs> sure. Uh, so first off, my mom actually binged the series recently. That was not because I told her to; it's just she did, and I relate a lot of the information that you gave in that in that um, review to her and she's like oh that's pretty cool <laughs> uh, have you have you did you read the Queen's Gambit um, <laughs> no I didn't read that book no okay since since watching the series have you wanted to go back and read that book um, honestly no I'm pretty overwhelmed with my existing uh, reading list <laughs> <laughs> same as I I am but anyway, so when I listened to that episode while I was on vacation in some other country, and don't worry, like <laughs> Caleb said, I took the parameters to return here, there you go. Uh, as I did. Vacation? I thought it was I business, think... you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. Duty called. Uh, when nature calls, as they say. Um, so I remember you asked Caleb about, like, you know, what media depictions have you seen of chess, fictional or non-visual? And I came up with a list... Of things on my mind, and then a few other things as well. So, oh, right on. Yeah, so, things that I know with that have chess in the media. So, I don't know if you guys know there was a there was a show back in like oh six oh seven called Being Ian, and they did a whole episode on chess. I remember that. 
uh, and it was pretty cool. It was it was like a sports movie almost as well, where he thought first he thought it was stupid, and then he actually played it and got to know the person who was teaching him, and then he got too full of himself, and he like you know ruined his relationship with that uh, his coach, and then you know as as the stupid sports movies go, the cliches go, he wins her back somehow and by defeating the opponent or playing fair and all that crap. So there was that. Then there was this chess... I don't remember what the name of it was called, but there was this chess original video animation, Caleb, you know what that is, uh, that I saw somebody review where they had these chess-themed villains in it. Oh. And, yeah, that was interesting. It was kind of wacky. And, of course, I would be remiss to not say uh, the... More one that I was I was surprised that you guys didn't talk about this, but the wizard's chest from Harry Potter. Uh, oh, although I know yeah. I know I know I know you didn't uh, watch that when you were a kid, Caleb. But you know that was that was something that I was introduced to, and I was like, holy smokes, this is pretty cool. I wish more chess games were like this, where they actually like became animated and just like knocked each other into bits. Did you uh, did you see that scene, Aaron and? Or, or Zach, when you guys were kids? Yeah, of course. Um, we loved those Harry Potter movies, and, and you're right, that's an awesome scene. And and actually, there's um, that's an accurate chess position. They actually did their research, and they created quite a beautiful uh, series of moves where Ron, as the knight, would sacrifice himself to allow Harry, who I think was playing as a bishop, um, yep. to deliver checkmate. And, and um, it's actually a real chess board and position and uh it was accurate so you can't really tell in the movie because of the camera angles and things that they use they don't really show you the full uh sequence but it is available and you can figure it out and it's quite a delight that's amazing i wish they did more uh i wish they had more chess games in that not so much like the trials but i just mean i wish we saw more wizards chess unless i'm just forgetting uh no, in the movies i think they played in the books but in the books, yes, but I wish they, at least in the, maybe in the back, it's been a while since I've watched all, like, eight of those movies, but, or at least after Philosopher's Stone, but, yeah, I wish they visually kind of showed that, maybe in the background, and it probably is, I'm being yelled at by the internet, so like, yes, it was, you stupid person! Oh my god. <laughs> um, but anyway, let us see now, so the next one I have is, so... I'm, Caleb, I'm surprised you didn't mention this. But oh, I, in, I think I know what you're going to say. I, I feel like such an idiot. <laughs> X Men. Yes. <laughs> in the yep. In the it, there's a whole chess like motif in that whole series. I think, or at least the first three movies. We even talked about X Men. <laughs> we just didn't mention the chess thing. <laughs> that's yeah. That's pretty funny. And how I don't know if I don't know if um, Brian Singer structured the whole movies as like chess based i, I don't uh, think so that, that'd be funny if it what he did but that's that's putting too much credit giving too much credit to that uh that that individual but there's a fact that i found out that apparently sirs patrick stewart and ian mckellen don't actually know how to play chess in their entire existence <laughs> what and thus they had to bring in a, a a person of chess to choreograph what moves to do at the end of the first movie that's that's highly bizarre huh yeah, you'd think that as as English gentlemen, they yes, exactly. You know, they they'd be into that art, <laughs> but apparently not. And that's fair. They were doing acting, and you'd think that you know between theater, like because you 
uh, have in between takes of, of theaters in, in a play. Of course, they were probably in starring roles. They'd like have downtime and maybe like do some chess moves, but no, probably not. Just get, staying in character and not trying to break character in that. Uh, let's see. Then there's you don't know this one, but there's a there's another Japanese animation TV show called Code Geass, and there's a bunch of chess motifs in that. Hmm. So that's a very big one. And of course, Caleb, I'm surprised. I mean, I know you don't like this movie, but I'm surprised you did not mention, and maybe you you know this one, Aaron, uh, the chess match from Blade Runner. Wow, I don't even remember a chess match. Was it with so, the big, what, was it Tyrell, the guy with the big glasses? Was it with him? So it was Tyrell and Sebastian, the um, the, the guy who was making the, the, the dolls, oh, I believe. yeah, yeah. And there that. was like a back and forth game between each other, and Roy Batty oh, was yeah. the one that enabled uh, himself. Like, by, by posing as Sebastian, he play or, or telling Sebastian what moves to play, he was able to get an audience with Tyrell. And so I was surprised that one wasn't in there playing it at his little house, uh, his little beeper or whatever to get in. Yeah. Basically just because, you know, Roy Batty wanted more life, so that was, you know, important. Yeah, I never think about that movie, so. <laughs> that's, that's fair. You don't like that movie, so. Uh, do you remember that scene in Blade Runner, Aaron, if you have seen Blade Runner at all? Our friend Jesse showed me part of it one time, but then we got interrupted and I've never actually seen it. Fair enough. You're not missing much. According to, according to us, but a lot of people love it, so. That's true. Yeah, according to me. Uh, read the book first and then judge the movie for yourself. Uh, but finally, Caleb, really, this is... I was i was very surprised oh, no. uh, at this one. Yeah, no, oh, no. you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> I don't. 3D chess in Star Trek. I mean, come on. Oh, yeah. yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. I mean, again, that's be- couch seat quarterbacking, going back to what I originally said, like, you know, however long ago it was. But couch, like, When I think of Star Trek, I think of poker. Oh, yeah. I guess I'm thinking of Toss more than I am TNG. That's fair. Um, Aaron, have you ever played 3D chess? Um, no, no, I can't say I have. Have you ever wanted to play 3D chess? I don't really know a lot about it. Um, the idea seems intriguing, but uh, I've heard it criticized by chess players as being kind of a novelty or a gimmicky thing. Yeah, gimmick. That's what I've heard, too. They're like, oh, it doesn't do much for the game except make it more complicated and more awkward. Yeah, there is something that's popular with uh, chess players, though. They like to play two different variations, at least. I've seen them play four-way chess, where um, you guys all share like a common center, uh, and you're basically playing on two teams of two, oh. trying to checkmate anyone. And if you checkmate anyone, their team loses. And then the other one is uh, choker. So you play a couple rounds of poker where you're you're dealt uh, pieces, and then you can gamble based on how strong your pieces are compared to your opponents. And then you have to play like a blitz game of ninety seconds with the pieces that you were dealt. If you if you both call the bet, or you can fold and get new pieces. Interesting. Cool. I like that. And then of course there's uh, there's boxing chess where you no uh, you box for a minute and then you play chess for like ten <laughs> minutes. Dude. So it's like a physical and a mental uh, combat. And if you get checkmated, you lose. And if you give up the fight or get knocked out, you lose. And then, of course, there's um, replacing the chess pieces with shot glasses. And whenever there's an exchange, you have to down the nice, the nice. liquid. Okay, now that I want to get into like chess and do boxing chess and 
all the other ones you you mentioned but god dang that's amazing dude have you done any of those variants um i've done the one with alcohol i would definitely love to try the others <laughs> uh yeah fair enough do you box much uh no i uh i've never boxed in my life but i really respect that uh hobby and i wouldn't mind picking it up i love how you say it, call it a hobby that's amazing um yeah let's see uh, oh yeah continue on with this quickly Oh, uh, so Assassin's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, trust me, I got notes on notes. Um, oh, no. <laughs> especially one for you, dude. But uh, in the game Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, there are puzzles uh, containing solving actual chess moves. Um, that, of course, since I know nothing about chess, I looked up a guide for because I'm like, I don't know what move to go in to where. So, <laughs> yeah, that was that was one of them. And I bet a lot of people did that. Uh, in the game, staying on video games, in the game Devil May Cry 3, there are also, I'm not joking, giant chess pieces that attack you. Uh, and just, like, stomp on your face. Not on any board or anything like that, but they just show up. And it's, uh, it's, it's just an enemy variant, and I thought that was uh, pretty cool, so I had to mention that one. And, oh yes, okay. Close to the references, or close to the end of the references. Uh, there is in the TV show, I don't know if it was in the comics or not, but in the TV show Arrow, filmed here, the boat that Oliver goes on is called the Queen's Gambit. Oh, and oh yeah. Now I'm Oliver, wishing that... Yeah. yeah, exactly. And now, <laughs> thinking on that, I wish the show had more chess themes to it. Mm. Uh, that'd be pretty interesting, but that's just me. That's barely a chess reference. Yeah. Barely a chess reference, of course, yeah. but still. Me and my brother Zach have been playing a lot of chess lately, and he's he's getting into it. He's getting a lot better. Yeah, chess is one of those things where it's really fun, and it can be an awesome hobby, and it can be great to get into, but there's a danger of it absorbing your life. And Like religion. <laughs> I think that's with everything, though, in life. If you get too focused on something... Yeah, you'll it'll it'll absorb your life, and that's I think anything with books, with television, I think worse than that, and with video games, whatever have you. <laughs> They're gonna say religion. I think we already discussed that. Bring it all back around for the end, you know, symmetry. Of course, this one I don't know if you guys read the comics of this or not, but there was a there was a Batman comic that featured the villain Bane, and this is post Nightfall, and he actually this is where the whole like. Dark Knight Rises theme comes not theme but like where the whole connection comes from with Dark Knight Rises because it was around this time post Nightfall that he was in league with the League of Shadows and or at least uh, yeah I know it's called League of Assassins but I think League of Shadows is a much better name <laughs> my, my opinion um, and he actually has a chess match against Ray's Raz Alul and I've Pretty sure I think it either ended in a stalemate or Bane beat him. I don't remember. It's been a, like six years since I read that comic. So there was that one too. And finally, for at least the chess portion, like the chess references oh, of this. How much longer you got, Aaron? <laughs> I'm almost done. I promise. <laughs> um, actually, yeah, I have three notes left, so don't worry. So there we go. Don't worry. No, I mean this is this is great. Keep going. I apologize for keeping you from your bed. The chess match in the opening of the season finale of X-Files Season 5. Filmed oh. at then GM Place, where my mother and aunt were extras. 
Oh, really? Huh, yeah. That's so, cool. so it's the season op- or that episode opens with a psychic kid going up against like I guess a Russian chess player, like a like a really good ch- Russian chess player, and he's obviously reading his mind to counter all his moves, and then a sniper is in the audience and shoots the Russian, but not the kid, and the rest of the episode is like protecting the kid and yeah they needed extras to fill the seats and my mom and aunt were big fans of the show at the time oh, that's in the great. late 90s and so yeah they got to go in there and she I think I don't know if she still has the tape of the episode like you can't see her but she's in there and it was like oh that's pretty that's pretty cool so I wanted to end all those references off <laughs> and oh yes that's right okay so the next one is you guys were talking about Kubrick and in that episode and he wanted dr osamu tezuka as i think it was his cinematographer or he wanted him on the film to work on the film with him on 2001 uh but declined due to working heavily or obsessively on astro boy and his other projects uh he is a he is a comic creator in japan and made astro boy phoenix dororo Many others. Uh, Jack, uh, Jet, I think Jack Black was one of them. You, you said he wanted him as the cinematographer? Not cinematographer, sorry, but he wanted him on the films in some way. Oh, like visual designer? I think, yeah, I think it was visual designer. Mm. Uh, it makes sense just because of how influential he was at the time. Yeah. I mean, that, that man is literally the god of, of Japanese comic books in the day. So there was a reason he wanted there. And he declined, but apparently uh, Dr. Tezuka, he was listening, always listening to... Uh, the soundtrack of the film in while in his studies. <laughs> it's a great soundtrack. Yeah, it is a good, it's a good soundtrack. Absolutely, it is. As we mentioned earlier in the speakeasy. <laughs> and finally, finally, the last one. Caleb, this one's for you. Oh, Dios mio. <laughs> uh, Dios mio, indeed. Um, watch your language. In, um, the, what was the uh, name of the lead actor? Oh, Anya Taylor-Joy. Anya Taylor-Joy. Is she... Yeah, okay. She's, is she American? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Okay. I thought my mom told me she was Russian. I'm like, that's cool. No, she's from Miami. Oh, okay. Pretty cool. I think I know where you're going here. So, you were you referred to her being in uh, the recent X-Men movie that took four years to release. Oh. Um, no. The X-Men, The New Mutants. Mm-hmm. Haven't seen it, whatnot. But you were... Wondering what her character's name was. Oh, yeah. And I didn't look this up. I knew this immediately offhand. I was like, I know exactly who he's talking about because I remember looking this up beforehand. <laughs> her name is Ilyana Rasputina, a.k.a. Magic, yeah, with a magic, K, yeah. a.k.a. the little sister of Peter Rasputin, a.k.a. the X-Man Colossus. Oh, what? What? I didn't know that connection. Damn. So... That's yeah. my notes for your episode of the wonderfully uh, titled Queen's Gambit. <laughs> and yeah, so those are all of me notes. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a really fun series. Zach, you watched that one too. Do you have any uh, thoughts to share about Queen's Gambit? Um, I guess for me, like as much as they did show the chess and the moves and prioritized it, they always used it to portray something. It was never all about the chess. Like, it was about Beth and her burden and sacrifice and, and everything about, like, 
her her mom and and, and the story behind it. it they didn't focus so much on the actual moves of chess and what's the best strategy to play here it was it was more about the drama in her life and chess um you know she was a genius so chess was kind of like an outlet kind of you know different things for her so um are you saying that's a detriment or to the show or do you wish there was more to do with chess um i think if you make it too much about chess then you you know people aren't going to like it and um definitely if you're tailoring to a smaller audience exactly yeah yeah they did a good job kind of having uh, teaching people about chess like they did focus on it quite a bit but also focusing a ton on the interpersonal stuff to kind of give a grounding for people who don't give a fuck about chess but maybe like Anya Taylor-Joy or just like female-led shows and especially having a female character um or female lead um especially nowadays with all the the big push for including women and whatnot um it was just like the the right time the right story the right you know i felt it was like directed pretty well even like the inclusion of some musical notes and um like some classical music that like the mother plays um i think it added to the whole vibe of the gambit uh or the queen's gambit and the you know the story yeah, it was a great series. I really enjoyed that. Thanks for uh, picking it, Aaron. I I probably w- I probably would have watched it eventually, but who knows how long I would have waited. But <laughs> it was nice to to get to it. Yeah, but I'll probably um I'll probably head to bed here now. But it was good talking with you guys. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, touched on a few topics, but um, <laughs> yeah. But you know, it was good. So I'm glad we were able to have this first session and build some rapport and. Maybe if Josh is available in the future, we can uh, discuss a little bit more into the the topic of religion, or um, or maybe some other topic. We'll see where it goes. I definitely want to have him on. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it's definitely good chatting with you guys. Hope you guys have a good rest of your night and also weekend. Any last words? Yeah, you you too. You too. Thanks very much, guys, and uh, thanks for picking up the tab, Caleb. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's always coming for me. Ask that Isaac over there. I'm always buying. I mean, that's that's on you, buddy. I don't I don't drink liquor, so you that's just... not paying for my drinks. Come on, man. I mean, I'll pay for my drinks. <laughs> Here, uh, it, drinks are on me between Zach and Aaron. Hey, there we go. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Have a good night, guys. Yeah. Peace. Good night. Cheers, buddy. Good night. Peace.
How's everybody's week been? Eh, shitty. It was fun recording last night, and it was fun recording today, but otherwise. Uh, I hope you find happiness somehow. Oh, I've got it, but it <laughs> doesn't mean that a week can't be shitty. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, Caleb. It was nice chatting with you today. Yeah, did you have a good week? Um, yeah, I think I did have a good week, you know. First week of the year. Got started on a number of projects. Was able to get a haircut and rearrange my room. So things are looking up for a good month and a good year. <laughs> That's great. Positive start. How about you, Zach? Um, yeah, still in the f- full swing at work. Things are going pretty straight. Uh, I have a new um, like girl that I'm seeing now. And oh, that's great. It's progressing pretty well. Yeah. So I'm. Yeah, and before that, it had been like a, a really long drought. So I'm just trying to uh, maintain, um, just keep a positive attitude. And uh, yeah, you got you guys got any good date ideas? <laughs> Ever heard of the? Uh, I think it's called the Blodell Conservatory. I think that's what it's called. You ever heard of that place? Any of you guys? I believe it's in what, what's that big park? Queen Elizabeth's Park? Is that what it's called? I'm I'm blanking right now. It's like a small little dome filled with kind of more tropical plants, but lots of different types of birds and fish. It's a really small little place. You you could walk through there in like half an hour. Oh, yeah. I think that's where everyone likes to take uh, grad photos. Oh, yeah. That place. I know what you're talking about. That's at, uh, you're right, Queen Elizabeth Park. Yeah, it's where the Canadians play. That's right. That's yeah, a great date place. I love going there. I've gone numerous times on dates. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, that's a great idea. I'd love to take someone there. Just because the flowers or what? what? What makes it such a great place for dates? Uh, one, it, it's in that nice little park, so you can walk around afterwards. They've got some gardens around there. But it's also, it's just, it just feels so different. You go in there, it's it's like nicely humid. There's all this water around, so it's got a nice aura. I myself, I love birds, so I love seeing all the different ones, but they're flying around and walking right around your feet. There's also, they also have a bit of a mice problem. Oh. (laughs) And so you'll always see little mice running around and and kind of playing too, and I love mice, so. Nice. 